Hello team and welcome to episode 396 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Terry Tucker. Terry is a motivational speaker, author, and international podcast guest on the topics of motivation, mindset, and self-development. Terry wasn't always the motivational speaker that he is today. He's gone through many different transitions in his career, spanning from a high school basketball coach to a SWAT team hostage negotiator. He's also gone through many transitions in his life and was diagnosed with cancer over 11 years ago, which has since led to the amputation of his foot in 2018 and his leg in 2020. Despite this, Terry lives his life to the absolute fullest and inspires others to do the same. I'm telling you now, you are going to leave today's episode with a new level of motivation and inspiration. In this episode, you can expect to learn why Terry doesn't fear death even whilst living with cancer, how to achieve and sustain excellence in your life, along with Terry's four truths and how utilizing these truths can allow you to live your best life possible. So without further ado, Terry Tucker. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I am great, Elliot. Thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. It's a pleasure to have you here. We were just speaking off air and I have a good feeling that we're going to relate on many different topics today. So I'm excited to dive into it. And before we do, I want to give the listeners a little bit of context about who you are. So can you explain who Terry Tucker is and what it is that you do? I am the oldest of three boys. I grew up in a very large city here in the United States called Chicago, Illinois. And I am six foot eight inches tall. So I was able to go to college on a basketball scholarship. And when I graduated from college, I, I moved home to find a job. I'm, I'm really gonna date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available to help people find employment. Fortunately, I found that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the, the hamburger chain in their marketing department. Unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother who were both dying of different forms of cancer. As I said, started out in marketing at Wendy's, then made a move to hospital administration, and then I made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did during my law enforcement career was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Uh, After law enforcement, I started a school security consulting business, coached girls high, high school basketball, Uh, Started a motivational speaking business right as COVID hit. But for the last 11 years, I've been battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma. And really my purpose in life now is just to put as much goodness, as much positivity, as much motivation, as much love back into the world as I possibly can with whatever time I have left. What an awesome uh, way to be living your life after that diagnosis. And with that diagnosis in mind, have you been given a life expectancy? Have you been given kind of an idea of how long you might have left? Well, it's funny. When I was first diagnosed, uh, melanoma was pretty much a death sentence. They, They could offer me nothing other than surgery. You know, if we can cut it out, we will cut it out. Otherwise, we really don't have anything for you. So... They, they told me that if I got a miracle, I would live five years. If I didn't, I'd probably live a couple years. Well, that was 11 years ago. And every, every year I get a letter from the original hospital, the original cancer center where I was treated, that is a, it's, it's more of a data collection thing. And, and they asked me to circle one of three things. Either you're alive with cancer, 
you're alive without cancer or you're dead. And I keep hanging around because I haven't figured out how to circle number three. <laughs> so, um, but it, it's true. I really do get that letter every year. I got it about a month ago. And that, so yeah, I, they don't give me time now. And I, you know, I've, I've had people tell me, you know, oh, you're probably not going to, you're probably, yeah, that's, that, you're right. I'm probably not going to. But you don't know as a doctor, as, as a medical per person, you know the odds. You know statistically how long I should live. But what you don't know is my heart, my mind, and my soul. And, and those things can force people or allow people to live a whole lot longer. You don't know that a year from now, you know, my son is getting married. And by God, I'm going to be at that wedding. So you may say you're going to be dead in six months. Well, you don't, you don't know me. And, and that's, I'm always real careful when people say, you know, when they put a, a sort of an expiration date on us and say, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be here in a year. You know, I might not, but you don't know that for a fact. So I, I'm always cautious with people to tell them, you know, yeah, doctors know, and they have to tell you this stuff, but they don't know who you really are and what you've got going on down the road. A hundred percent. And I think it's better to live every single day with optimism and an idea that you will make it to tomorrow. You will make it to next week and next month. And even if you don't have a rare form of cancer, tomorrow is not promised for any of us. So it doesn't mean we should all be sat around thinking that, oh, it might be the end soon and let's live our life in any other way, right? I think that that's the perfect way that you could be taking that diagnosis and taking that understanding and, and running with it as well. And I'm curious, Terry, do you fear death? Especially considering that over the past years, you've been kind of given an idea of like, well, your life is pretty limited at this stage because of the condition you've had. I, I don't. And, and I, I don't fear death because I believe I lived my life. And, and I, I, I've seen, you know, so many people, I, I always kind of say that, you know, so many people live a casual life. And because of that casual living, their goals, their dreams, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. I, I've seen a lot of people die, and whether it was in law enforcement or whether it was these number of years that I've had cancer, and I'm gonna make a huge generalization. But I think the people, Elliot, that you and I would say die you know, happy or peaceful deaths seem to be the people who found their purpose in life and lived it. Whereas the people who kind of go kicking and screaming, you know, who want another month or another year seem to be the people who never really did anything with their life. So I, I, I've seen that with my own eyes. So I don't think it's, it's too much of a leap to say, you know, we're all going to die. That's the one thing about death. We all get it once, but we're not all going to really live. And if you live your life, Death is not nearly as scary as those people who just kind of muddle through life. Absolutely. And I'm sure we're going to touch on this more as the conversation goes on. But I want to take a step back to go through all of your career transitions. It's amazing if one person makes one career change in their life, especially when they maybe are not enjoying what they're doing so much and they finally take that brave step to go on to something new. But so many people stay stuck in things that they maybe don't enjoy or they are there just due to the comfort and everything along those lines. What led you to making so many career changes and what gave you the bravery to take the steps to do so many crazy twists? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and there really is kind of a backstory because if you look at my resume, it looks like it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> but 
my my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during prohibition in the United States when alcohol was outlawed during the Great Depression in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And when the gangs, Al Capone and people like that were sort of shooting up the town. And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But when I expressed an interest in sort of following in his footsteps, my dad, who was an infant at the time, remembered the stories my grandmother told of that knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. So when I expressed that interest in following my grandfather's footsteps, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college, you're, you're going to major in business, you're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. But that's what my dad wanted me to do. That's not what I felt my purpose was. So when I graduated from college, I mentioned my father was dying of cancer. So I had a choice. I could have said, sorry, dad, I know you're dying, but I'm going to go do my own thing, blaze my own trail, or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. So understanding the backstory, I did what my father wanted me to do. I went into business after I graduated from college, and I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away, and then I followed my own dreams and became a police officer. Now, I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, so I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than my younger counterparts, but it was, it was just something. I mean, my parents had given my brothers and I everything, so I was, I was going to be there for my dad. You know, I, I was going to do what he wanted me to do until it got to a point in time where I still kept that, that purpose alive in my life. And then I had the opportunity to fulfill that. So understanding the backstory makes my resume look a little bit more, I guess, normal for lack of a better word. And tell us a little bit about your time in the force as well. The police, especially in the US, get a lot of flack. Police force stop internationally get it as well. But specifically in the US, they are under the spotlight a hell of a lot. Has your experience with the police force been fairly positive? And I'm also keen to get an idea of why you transitioned out. Was it due to your diagnosis or was it due to different reasons? The, the reason I trans, uh, transitioned out was because my wife lost her job. My wife has been the primary breadwinner in our family. She lost her job and uh, needed to move to another state in the United States. And so I, I had to get out of that. And, you know, my wife supported me in my law enforcement career. It was important for me to support her in her, in her career as well. I mean, I, I loved being a police officer. I worked with great people. You know, I, I and you're going to laugh at this, you know, knowing that I'm six foot eight inches tall. I was an undercover narcotics investigator. So I would, yeah, I, I know, as soon as I tell that people, they're like, there's no way. And, and there is. And, and, the, and the way I was able to be successful in that line of work is that illicit drugs, that industry, and it is an industry, is motivated by greed. So if you have money, you will find somebody that will sell you drugs. And we were a street level uh, enforcement unit. So, I mean, we did work federally sometimes, but you know, it was pretty much buying drugs from the guy on the street corner and, and arresting him or her and, and taking them to jail. So, you know, I, I would do that. I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. I, I wanted to get into that because on a SWAT team, usually in a police department, those are the best trained officers. They have the best equipment and things like that. So I always wanted to be part of the best in my life. So I, I loved being a police officer. The problem I see here in the United States is that we ask our police officers 
to do everything, to be everything. I mean, so, you know, yes, you enforce the law, which is your primary job, but you're also a counselor and a mental health crisis person. And, oh, now we're going to carry Narcan for people who overdose on opioids. It's like, wait a minute, when did we become, you know, EMTs and stuff like that? So we, you know, the, the law enforcement group in the United States just seems to be the catch-all for whatever we need to do in the community. And as a result, we get a bad rap. And, and don't get me wrong, we're not perfect. We, we absolutely could do a better job of explaining to people what we do and how we do it to get them to understand why we pulled you over at two o'clock in the morning. Well, your car matched the description of somebody that just committed a robbery. It is not you. Thank you for your cooperation. You have a safe day. Oh, people get that. If, if you're honest with them, here's why this happened. I didn't pull you over just because you're black. I pulled you over because your car matched the description, but we've got to do a better job of communicating. And, and I think that's true. And whether it's a husband and wife, whether it's a parent or a child, whether it's a boss or a subordinate, we need to do a better job of communicating with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all take that learning away and apply it to any area of our life, not only if we're in law enforcement, but if we're in if we're a human, full stop, in fact. <laughs> Let's just leave it as that, to be completely honest. And was that transition difficult? Of course, you supported your wife, but obviously, when you go into your dream career, you start to establish a certain identity. You start to you know, become very, very aligned with the things that you do. How did you find leaving that behind? Although I know that, of course, you would have supported your wife, but that can't have been easy. No, it wasn't easy. I, I mean, I loved doing what I was doing, but I think there's a difference between loving what you do and it being your identity. And I did see, you know, some officers who had been probably on the force for 35, 40, 45 years and couldn't retire because their whole identity was tied to what they did, you know, to the gun, to the badge and, and all that kind of stuff. That was never the case for me. I, I mean, I was, I, I had a, you know, a college degree, I had a master's degree. I, I knew I could do other things in my life. And I knew that I got into that line of work because I wanted, I wanted to make a difference. You know, I wanted to try to help my community. And so I, I figured I could transition that into something else. And I was able to do that. I started a school security consulting business to help schools be safer and things like that. So, you know, if I had my druthers, I would have been able, I would have loved to have stayed doing that. But like I said, my family was incredibly important to me, much more important than what I did for a living. So it, it was something that I would absolutely do again if I had to. For sure. And the transition to what you do today, I'm sure, was much easier. You mentioned it was a very tough time, which was the pandemic. But for some businesses, that actually was the best time. And for others, that was more of a challenging time. How did it look to create the company that you have now? Yeah, I, you know, I start this motivational speaking business and then COVID hits and everything shuts down. I mean, people aren't doing any, you know, they're not doing events in person. They're not doing even events virtually. I mean, the whole Zoom thing and that had, hadn't really come up yet. And so I had to figure out how to deliver my message, like so many other companies, in a different way, in a different format. And somebody had reached out to me and said, would you like to be a guest on my podcast? And I said, sure. What's a podcast? <laughs> I, I had no idea what, what a podcast was. And they explained it. It was like, well, we kind of have a conversation, but we record it and then we put it up on the internet. And I'm like, okay, sure. I, Elliot, I was, I was scared. I was terrible when I first started out. I, I had 
post-it notes all around the camera. <laughs> and the person would ask me a question and I would kind of lean in and read the post-it note. And, and it was like, oh my God, I'm horrible. I'm horrible at this. I, I didn't have good stories. I didn't know my story. I couldn't articulate it in a, in a logical way and things like that. But like everything else, you, you keep doing it and you, you get better and you practice. And I, I had a conversation with my publisher. I, I published a book in 2020 and I told him, I said, you know, I listen to every podcast I've ever been on because I want to be better. I want to see if I can have a better story in that, you know, for that question or how many times did I say um or huh or whatever. So I want to be better. And he said, no, Terry, you don't understand. It's not about being good. It's just about not sucking. And I said, well, thanks for the title of my next book. You know, just don't suck. I said, but no, it's that's not what it's about. I want to be a good guest. So the pod, the podcast host feels that, you know, I, I brought something positive to his or her audience. So, yeah, it, it was it was kind of scary. But, you know, step outside your comfort zones and do something that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. And here you are. X amount of hundreds of podcasts later and who would have thought you had those post-it notes around your camera you have to share that podcast that first ever one with me after the show and I can go have a <laughs> listen and a watch of that but obviously I think I burned that somewhere <laughs> I don't know <laughs> it probably doesn't exist anymore but yeah as, right. and then as you mentioned obviously you launched the motivational speaking company you obviously released your book as well and it's titled in a really, really excellent way, called, which is called Sustaining Excellence, if I'm not mistaken, right? And I'm curious to get- yeah, Sustainable Excellence. Yeah. yeah, and I'm curious to get an idea of excellence in the first place is pretty hard to achieve. So how do we go about getting it to the point of it being sustainable as well as achieving it in the first place? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I get that from time to time. People are like, well, what is excellence? And my response is, I don't know. And like, what do you mean you don't know? You wrote the book. How could you possibly not know what excellence is? And the way I describe that is, you know, Elliot, you and I may look at, you know, a, a sports team or a painting or a company or whatever. And you may say, man, they, they are excellent. And I may say, yeah, I think they're good or I think that's a good painting, but I don't think it's excellent. I think excellence sort of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You have to decide in your mind, in your heart what you feel excellence is. What is the top of the mountain? You know, how do you get there? And then once you get there, whatever, however you define it, how do you sustain it? And I think the, the way you sustain it is you continue to innovate, you continue to develop, you continue to grow. And I think the problem that people have is, you know, they sort of get to the top of the mountain, they s sort of sit back, put their feet up on the desk, pour themselves a drink, and they're like, I've arrived, I've made it. And then what happens? Six months later, a year later, boom, somebody passes them up and they're like, wait a minute, what happened? Well, what happened is somebody else saw how you got to the top of the mountain, figured out a better way to do it and passed you up. So if you wanna, you know, wh why do so many sports teams never repeat as champions? And I think it's because they sort of sit back on their laurels and like, oh man, look, you know, we worked really hard last year to get good. Are we willing to work that hard or harder to maintain it? And most people aren't. So I think, you know, the way you sustain it is you continue to grow, you continue to innovate, you continue to find ways of delivering your service or, or your product. 
in a different way to a different audience. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I actually did a podcast. It was a solo one on my lessons learned from being a business, a business owner for the past several years. And one of those was to continue to grow and innovate. And I referenced the story of Blockbuster and Netflix. And obviously, we know where Blockbuster is today. And I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it was a ridiculous number as if I think Netflix went to the Blockbuster offices, they sat down with the CEO and all the people in charge at the time. And they were like, okay, we've got this company we are more than happy to focus on your online store you focus on your in-store stuff but we'll sell you netflix for i don't know i'm butchering the numbers here but it's like 50 million you know you take netflix for 50 million we'll develop your online you continue with the in-store stuff and you know you have full rights over us and we all know what happens later blockbuster go bankrupt Netflix are worth billions today and they continue to grow and grow. And that for me exemplified exactly what you said in the sense of people get to a point where they rest on their laurels, they don't choose to improve, they get to that stage of success and like, yep, we're good here. And unfortunately, that thinking of having that day to day thinking and not that year to year thinking is, I think, what trips a lot of people up when it comes to, as you say, sustaining excellence. Yeah, it, it really is. There's, there's another story, you know, back in the 1930s, and 40s, a lot of homes were fueled by coal. And, you know, the coal dust would get all over the place. And this company developed a product that people could use on their walls to take that coal dust off. Well, come 1950s, 1960s, now homes are being heated by natural gas or electricity and stuff like that. So this company's got this, you know, this, this product that was used to clean walls. And, and a woman took the product and brought it into her preschool and allowed the kids to play with it. Because it was a pretty, you know, it was like flour and water and, and like some kind of liniment, some kind of oil and stuff like that. So it was pretty natural product to use. And, and, and you know, and they went on and, and, and one of the guys, uh, I think her uncle was on the board of this company. And, and the woman said, hey, you know, this is a great product for these children and they enjoy it. And the company took that product tweaked it a little bit, and it became what we now know, at least here in the United States, you probably did too, as Play-Doh, you know, as, as sort of that, you know, you can make little figures and stuff out of it, you know, kind of a, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, 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 there's a company that went from this is a product used to clean walls to now this is a product we, we retooled to have kids play with. So yeah, you, you've got to find different ways to deliver your product to different audiences. Absolutely. And if they had that idea and stuck with it through and through that it would just be something that went on people's walls, they wouldn't have created something that has been around for around 100 years now, almost. We're coming up to 2030, which is insane to think. And I couldn't agree more with that. And I want to break down that excellence piece as well. You mentioned that the beauty was in the eye of the holder and also excellence, I guess, is in terms of how you place it in the certain areas of your life. But if we were to break it down, let's say I'm looking to build a business or to essentially achieve the goals that I have in my life and I want to achieve excellence, I want to be a high performer, but I've never experienced that in the past. What are some of the key steps that I can take to start being a high performer and start to achieve some form of excellence in my life? The first thing you need to do is sort of just jump into the pool. You know, a lot of people sort of stick their toe in. It's like, let me test, test the water and things like that. There is a I was listening to this interview the other day. There's a man here in the United States by the name of Jesse Itzler, and he was an owner of one of the professional sports teams, the Atlanta Hawks and the National Basketball Association. Well, he's married to a woman by the name of Sarah Blakely. 
And Sarah Blakely started a company called Spanx, which is a, a woman's undergarment uh, company. And he tells the story that when she started that company, he said if she would have waited until everything was right, you know, until all her ducks were in a row, she had everything figured out. He said, I guarantee you somebody else would have done it sooner than her. She just jumped in and kind of figured it out as she went. And now it's a billion dollar company. And, and so I think that's the first thing you got to do. You, you just got to, if this is what you want to do, yes, get as much information as you can, but you can always get more information. You can always get more data. And if you wait for everything to be perfect, somebody else is going to beat you to the punch. So that would be the first thing I would tell you is, is, is to just jump in and figure it out kind of as you go. You're going to make mistakes. That's okay. Learn from those mistakes. Um, I think the second thing I would, I would say is you've got to be able to control your mind. You and I, you know, we're talking before we jumped on here about the importance of, of, of mindset. And, you know, I've had people in my cancer journey, I told you that had come up to me and said, you know, Terry, I, I could never do what you did. I could never go through what you've gone through. If that's your attitude going into something like starting a business or something like that, well, I would tell you to sleep in that morning because if you've already defeated yourself, you've already decided that you're probably not going to be successful. So you have to be able to callous your mind and realize I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep growing. Kind of like the, the story we were just talking about when I first started on podcasts, I was horrible. I was terrible. I mean, nobody wanted to listen to me, but you figure out how to get better and get better and get better. And, and I, the third thing I guess I would say is, Never be satisfied. I don't care how good you are. I don't care if you have the market cornered or whatever it is. Always try to find a better way to deliver your service, a more productive way. Find a different client group to serve, whatever that ends up being. I guess those would be my, my, my three recommendations sort of out of the gate. I love those. And I want to go back to the mindset piece. When did that first appear in your life? Were you always someone who had a relatively strong and positive mindset? Was it something you were brought up with? When was the moment for you which you realized the power of your mindset and started utilizing it to your advantage? When I was about 15, I guess, I, uh, I had my first knee surgery. And, I, I, and, I, and then I had a second one sort of shortly after that. And when I went back playing basketball after that, I remembered my, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you're probably a step slower since your operations and college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I am still playing at an elite level and college coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of playing for their college or university. I, I learned then and there that I needed to sort of change the narrative. I needed to, you know, to kind of, we're, we're all going to have negative thoughts. I mean, it's, it, I don't care how positive you are, you, from time to time, you're going to have negative thoughts. You just have to change that negative into something positive. I mean, your mind can hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that negative? So it, for me, it started fairly early on in my life. I can't say that, you know, I didn't slip from time to time and get in my own head and, you know, get in my way to being successful. But I, I think for the most part, I learned that lesson at an early age. And how do you continue to strengthen your mindset and callous it? I've heard you mention that word before. It's easy enough to, like you said, 
recognize you have some negative thoughts, overcome some adversity, but when life keeps hitting you as it's hit you, for example, have you been able to say, well, actually, I'm going to just stay with this mindset. I'm going to continue to strengthen it and continue to push through no matter what the circumstances are. I mean, for me, it's, and I, and I recommend this, I, I try to do this every day of my life. And I absolutely recommend this to everybody that I talk to do one thing every day that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that scares you, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, we get let go from our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that pain than those people who, you know, just kind of like muddle, you know, going back to muddling through life. They're they're not challenging themselves. They're not. So, you know, I, 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 a simple way to, to think of it is this. If you don't want to do it, do it. You know, I, I don't want to go to the gym today. Go to the gym. I don't want to clean the house. Clean the house. I don't want to make my bed. Clean, make your bed. I don't want to study for that test. Study for that test. Do the things that you don't want to do, and that helps you callous your mind. Yeah, and it starts with those small steps, right? And then over time, it's just building that resilience and kind of, as you've mentioned, callousing, right? It's the process of just hardening and hardening and hardening. Because if you can't handle the things that maybe seem small in the grand scheme of things, but maybe seem like a big deal to you on a day-to-day basis, which is part of the reason why you want to do the, don't want to do them, it's if they really do add up and they really do make a difference as well. So yeah, I think that's a really valuable takeaway. And something I want to transition onto now is the four truths that you speak about. Can you run us through those truths? Sure. So the first one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you stronger and more resilient. The third one I kind of look at as a legacy type of truth, and it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And then the fourth one, I think is pretty self-explanatory, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And I sort of refer to those four truths as, as sort of the bedrock of my soul. I think they're just a good place to start to build a quality life off of. Can you break them down bit by bit for us? So let's start with control your mind or it will control you. What do you mean exactly by that? And what type of implications positively and negatively can we expect to see in our life if we start to live by that mantra? You know, the story that I just told about when I was 15, you know, of of realizing that I've got all this negative garbage in my mind. The the Cleveland Clinic, a, a, a healthcare organization here in the United States, did a study, and, and, and I've heard different versions of this study, that on any given day, we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our minds, 95% of which are the same thoughts that we had the day before. So if you do the math, we have about 3,500 new thoughts every day in our, in our mind. And the other interesting thing I found was that your mind operates at a speed of about a thousand words a minute. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't read anywhere near that, you know, that speed. I can't type, you know, at that speed or anything like that. So you've, you've got all these thoughts going on in your mind, most of which are thoughts you had yesterday or the day before and things like that. So you only have about 3,500 new, new thoughts. But 3,500 is still, in my mind, 
so a, a good. lot of thoughts. Yeah. So you have to be able to control the thoughts in your mind, because if you don't, your mind is going to control you. Your, your mind wants to go to that comfortable and easy place. And I guess let me because I one and two kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. So in terms of the truth, so the embracing the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life, there was a in, in 1976, again, I'm really going to date myself now. I was 16 years old, and there was a U.S. gold medal winning Olympic swimmer by the name of Shirley Babishaw, who had one of the greatest yet simplest quotes that I ever heard. And this is what she said Winners think about what they want to happen, losers think about what they don't want to happen. So, winners can override their negative brains and focus on the things they want to occur. Losers can't see the value of pursuing a goal or a dream and never get past themselves. When I was growing up, the University of Indiana here in the United States had a basketball coach by the name of Bobby Knight. And Knight had a great quote. And he said, mental is to physical as four is to one. So here's this great coach teaching elite athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important to anything that your physical body will ever do. And, and, and I guess, let, let me kind of give you this example. If, if I took a basketball and I went out onto the court and I started to practice free throws, there would be a certain part of my brain that would engage, that, that if we could look at it under an MRI that would light up. If I thought about taking that basketball, going out onto that court and shooting those free throws, that exact same part of my brain would engage. So I always tell people, be very careful with how you talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves, whether we like to admit it or not, but be very careful what you say to yourself because we all become what we think. Absolutely, and do you have any tips and tricks on how you manage that? in a talk and also what you've done to cultivate such a strong mindset apart from of course like you said doing hard things every day are you a meditator are you a journaler they seem to be some practices that a lot of people lean on for success within their mindset but getting their, your mind in the right place is something that requires day-to-day -day efforts and is there something that you do on a day-to-day -day basis aside from that hard thing that helps you strengthen your mindset and control that in a talk i do and and for me it's prayer I, I, I pray, I, I, you know, and, and, and like, you, like you said, I mean, you have to figure out what works for you. You know, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's prayer, you know, whatever it ends up being, you have to figure out what that is for you. And, and I think one of the things that I learned from playing team sports, and for me it was sports, I think it can be whatever team you're a part of, whether it's your family, people you work with, people your church, whatever. I think what team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize that on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, etc. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So I've, I've met so many people. I, I meet people every day that have cancer that either, you know, want me to pray for them or, or, or will pray for me because of my cancer. So prayer is an incredibly important thing. And you realize that it's really not about you. You know, it, it's about 
what you can do for other people. And, and the way I describe that is this. We seem to think that we're born empty and that when we get out of school and we, we sort of get into life, that our job is to fill ourselves up. You know, I got to get a job, make a lot of money. I've got to have a great education, a great family, drive a nice car, live in a nice house. And we fill ourselves up. And Elliot, what I've come to understand is that it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. We're born with everything we need to be successful in our lives already inside of us. So instead of filling ourselves up, I believe our job should be to empty ourselves out to empty ourselves out for the betterment, certainly of ourselves, but of our family, of our community, of our you know place where we work, of our God, whatever you believe that to be. And I think if you do that, you'll find that you're probably a whole lot happier in your life because it's not like, what can I get? I've, you know, you're on this sort of hamster wheel where you're going around and around and around and getting stuff and you're still not fulfilled. You're still not happy. But when you flip that around and say, what do I have to give to people? All of a sudden, you're not focused on you anymore. You're focused on making a difference in your community. Yeah, it's almost like you're stripping off the layers that society has laid on you. You know, you need to go to school. You need to get your education. You need to get the job. You need to get the house, 2.4 children, as you mentioned. And then essentially, the whole goal, as you've mentioned, is to actually strip away all of that and just reveal your true authentic essence right because as you've mentioned if we come whole of course life and experiences enrich us and the people that we come across in life can really add a lot to us but also at the same time i think as you've mentioned we've just got to recognize what we have to offer as human beings at our very essence versus all the things that we have or possess or we need to gain it is just about simply being you it is and there's a there's an old story about, I don't know if you've heard this, about Alexander the Great, probably one of the greatest conquerors in the world. And I don't, I don't think this is a true story, but it, it still it really kind of goes to what we're talking about. Supposedly, when Alexander the Great is dying, he calls his counselors around and he says, look, I want you to carry out my final three wishes. My first wish is that I want only my doctors, my physicians, to carry my coffin to the grave. The second wish is I want the road to the cemetery paved with gold and silver and precious stones. And the third wish is I want my hands hanging out of my, my coffin. And one of his counselors steps forward and says, okay, you're Alexander the Great, the most powerful man in the world. These seem like kind of goofy wishes. Why are you making these final three wishes? And he said, well, number one, he said, I want my doctors to carry my coffin to the grave because I want people to understand that no doctor heals anybody. They just help the body. They assist the body in healing itself. So people need to be cognizant of how they're treating their body. Are they exercising? Are they eating right and things like that? He said, that's number one. Number two, he said, I spent my entire life accumulating you know, gold and wealth and power and influence. And yet none of that is going with me beyond the grave. I want people to realize that None of your riches, none of your valuables go with you beyond the grave. The only thing that does is the love you have in your heart. And the third thing he says is, well, I want my hands outside of my coffin because I want people to understand that I came into this world empty handed and I pretty much leave it in the same way. So I, I think it, it's kind of a good story to sort of 
look at what's really important in life. And again, probably one of the most powerful men in the world realizing that none of this matters. None of this is real. What really matters is what we have in our heart, our mind, and our soul. Yeah, that's a super powerful story. I like that a lot. I won't forget that in a hurry, that's for sure. So I want to come back to those truths. And on the third one, on the legacy piece, can you break that one down for us? Here in the United States, we had a man by the name of Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and he was a television personality. And he educated so many, so many kids on public television, including me, uh, on how to be a better person, how to be part of, of the community and things like that. When Mr. Rogers died in 2003, his family was going through his personal effects, <clears throat> excuse me, and found his wallet. And in that wallet was a scrap piece of paper on which Mr. Rogers had written four simple words, life is for service. So think about, you know, we all, what we were talking about before, we all wanna get stuff and stuff is gonna make us happy. But Mr. Rogers knew that what made you happy was service, was helping other people. And when I, when I had my leg amputated as part of my cancer journey and I found out I had these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary and to the cemetery and to the church and I planned my funeral. And because I go on podcasts like yours and talk to people in person about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, I actually got some brushback from people who commented that somehow planning my funeral was in some way defeatist. And I had to tell these folks that, you know, the last time I checked, we're all going to die. All of us are going to die, but not all of us are really going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I absolutely love. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to hasten my demise in any way, <laughs> shape or form. But death isn't nearly as scary for me because I believe I live the purposes for which I was put on this earth to do. I think you've answered that perfectly. I think it really, really hits home. And as we've touched on many, many times in this podcast now, like you said, everyone is going to die, but really not everyone chooses to live. So I hope everyone who's listening today is taking that opportunity, whether they believe that tomorrow is promised or not, that's taking inspiration from your words and your experience and really diving down that route. And with that being said, on to the last one on the quitting piece. Let's go through that truth. Yeah, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but the way it, it resonates with me is this. Someday my, my pain, my cancer journey is going to end. You know, it may end through surgery, it may end through the development of some type of new medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. My, my wife works with a young man who is a former Navy SEAL here in the United States, a member of the military, one of the, probably in the US, some of the toughest men in the world. And he's kind enough on my off weeks of treatment to call me and check up on me and stuff like that. And we, we spent a lot of time talking about how the importance of, of having a resilient mindset can lead you to success. And we talk sometimes about what the SEALs call their 40% rule. And, and this is a rule that basically says 
if you're done, if you're through, if you're at the end of your rope, you can't go on that you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have another 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. So the next time you don't think you can get off the couch and go to the gym or, you know, the next time you don't want to study for that test or the, or the next time, you know, you don't want to stay late at work and do that, that project that needs to get done, remember you have 60% left in reserve to give to yourself. And, and so, you know, we all think that, that we're done. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I believe we all have a breaking point. But I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than we ever give ourselves credit for. It's like as soon as we have a little bit of discomfort, we seem to be like, nope, don't want to, not, not doing that anymore. I'm going to quit. I'm going to give up. Don't do that. Realize that you can push through that pain and that'll make you a more resilient individual. Absolutely. And why do you think that people are quitting a lot easier, or maybe not easier, but a lot sooner and people are less incentivized and motivated to go after the hard things, to push through that pain point. I actually put on my Instagram story today that that moment where things suck, that moment where things start to get hard and not through, you know, just because they are and because you're not managing your time or managing all the things that you have in your life in a certain way. It's not sucking for the sake of sucking, but let's say you're on a pursuit of business or your weight loss journey or anything like that. At that moment where it starts to get hard, that's usually the point at which people quit. And quite often, what I find, especially in the work that I do, is once people push through that moment of it sucking, of it feeling uncomfortable, of it feeling like they want to give up and they start to question everything, beyond there is their results. But I find that so many people get to that stage and that's their moment of retreating and they never get the opportunity to see what's on the other side of that. Why do you find more and more people are stopping at that hurdle? Maybe it's not the first or the second or the third, but it's at that hurdle which they really need to go over to go forward in life, why are we always stopping here? The short answer is my generation, to be honest with you. I mean, because we've created a, a, a group of young people that, you know, we never wanted our kids to have anything bad happen to them. We, we never wanted, you know, our kids to, you know, to experience defeat or loss or, or anything like that. And so now when those kids grow up and get into society, they are faced with difficult things. They are faced with challenges in their life and they don't, they don't know how to handle those challenges. And let, let me give you this story. When I was in college, I went to a military college here in the United States. And one, one year, the president of the school was a man by the name of Admiral James Stockdale. And Admiral Stockdale was a naval aviator, a fighter pilot during the Vietnam War in the 1960s and 1970s and was actually shot down uh, while flying a mission over North Vietnam. And for almost eight years, he was a prisoner of war and was routinely beaten and tortured and abused and eventually got out and won our nation's highest military award, the Medal of Honor. But I didn't have a lot of interaction with the Admiral, but I remember being at an event with him one time where somebody asked him, who survived that cruelty, that brutality of being a prisoner of war? And he said, well, let me tell you who didn't survive. He said, it wasn't the big, strong, tough guys that thought that they could handle any kind of abuse or torture. And he said, and this kind of surprised me. He said, it wasn't even the optimists. These were the guys that thought they would be let go or rescued by Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter and Thanksgiving, Christmas and Easter would come and go and they would not be released. And he said, those people died of a broken heart. He said, the people who survived 
were the people who learned to control what they could control, which according to Stockdale at that time was our breathing and the thoughts in our mind and controlled that. He said everything else was at the discretion of the enemy. You know, when we ate, when we slept, when we were tortured, when we got mail, everything was at their discretion. So the people that survived were the people that realized what they could control and controlled that. So if you, if you kind of move that forward into our own lives, we spend so much time trying to control things that are, that are totally out of our control, that we have no control over. Figure out what you can control and then control those things and see how far your life can go. Yeah, I think that's super, super powerful. And I think once we come back to taking responsibility for the things that we genuinely have responsibility for, we can proceed in ways in which we never believed we could before. And I think that that personal responsibility piece is a really, really big part that's kind of weaved its way through this entire conversation as well. And obviously controlling the controllables is one aspect, but what about some other aspects when it comes to personal responsibility and people really looking at their life and saying, okay, this is my life here and I want to make sure that I steer it in the direction that is truly for me, not in the direction that it just seems to be going. What are some steps that we can take to really put that control back in our hands and really start to live a life by design versus a life that's being designed for us? I think a couple of things, and you make a great point that, you know, we're all on a journey. We're all on kind of our own highway, our own road. And I think where we go off the rails is that we, you know, I may look at you and say, well, look, Elliot's got this great podcast and, you know, he's making a lot of money doing this. And he, you know, and it's like, I want what Elliot has, or wait a minute, that person lives in a nice house or has a great job. I want what they, and, and instead of, you know, life has somehow become a competition where I'm in competition with you and I'm in competition with our my neighbor. When did that happen? I mean, my life is my life, your life is your life, my neighbor's life is his life. So I think instead of saying, I want what he has, and instead of saying, and, and that's great, you can say, you know, I would like to have what Elliot has, but I am, I am thankful for what Elliot has. I'm thankful for the fact that, that he has this. It's not a competition, I, I'm glad he has it. He probably worked hard for it. Same thing with my neighbor, but there's this jealousy that we all seem to like we're in competition and, and I need to be better than you or I need to have more than you. And if I am, then somehow I'm better than you. So I, I would say stay in your lane, you know, be happy for what your neighbors have and your friends have, but don't be jealous of that. Figure out your unique gifts and talents. We all have things that we're great at. I'm not good at math, but I'm good at writing. So if you put me in a job as an accountant, I probably wouldn't be very happy or very successful. But if you put me in a job where I could write or read or something like that, I'd probably be a whole lot happier. We all have unique gifts and talents. Figure out what your unique gift and gifts and talents are and play to those strengths. That's why God gave them to you. You know, that's why we're, we're all different in, in our own little way. So I would, I would find your unique gifts and talents and then Try to, you know, try to make that happen for yourself. And I'm telling you right now, there's no such thing as the perfect job. No such thing. It doesn't exist. You know, there, there are going to be things you don't like about whatever it is that you're doing. But use your gifts to further your, I, I'm trying to remember that there was an architect who said, what's out there that I have some interest in? And I'm totally, totally butchering this quote. What's out there that needs to be done that I have some knowledge or interest in and I'm willing to do it. If you think about that, 
go find a job like that. And it doesn't have to be a perfect job. Don't wait to say, oh, I want to wait for my perfect job. Just go do something. I, I, I read a book recently called um, Build for Tomorrow, and it's written by a man by the name of Jason Pfeiffer, and he's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And he talks about his career where he started out as a newspaper reporter in a small town here in the United States. And he wanted to be an editor. He thought he wanted to be an editor. So he went to work for a company and learned how to edit in this particular way. And once he learned that skill, he went to another company and learned a different way to edit. And then once he learned that skill, he went to another company and learned a different way to edit. And eventually got him to the point where he's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. So don't think that I've got a job and I've got to stay here. I've got to plant roots. If it's not helping you grow, if it's not helping you develop, find something else to do. I mean, people have seven, eight jobs in the course of their career. We're not a company or we're not a society anymore that, you know, goes to work for one place and does that for 30 years or 20 years. Figure out what you enjoy. Find a way to get somebody to pay you for it and see what happens in your life. Yeah, it comes back to that stepping out of the comfort zone once again, and just doing the best that you can to look at different opportunities in life and not looking at what your position is now as your final destination and just taking those steps forward. And do you think that's where a lot of that jealousy comes from as well, is that people are stuck in positions that they don't want to be in, but they see no way of getting out of it themselves, whether that's down to their bravery, whether that's down to circumstance, or whether that's down to them simply not taking control. Do you think that's where the jealousy comes from? I, I think so in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and, and I think, again, going back to what, what we've produced in my generation, kids don't want to fail. Kids don't know how to fail. You know, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things, not one of the things, but many of the things that, that athletics teaches you. It teaches you how to be part of a team. It teaches you how to be coachable. It teaches you how to fail. It teaches you how to be successful. It, it teaches you all those things. But we've got all these parents that are injecting themselves into these little kid games, whether it's baseball or, or, or football, football for you, and football in the United States is a little bit different or, 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 you know, whatever it is, all these parents are, you know, like I know the best. I, I coached girls high school basketball and I used to always in my parent meeting at the beginning of the season, I would joke with my parents. I'm like, look, I played basketball in college. Most of you never even played in high school. So if you don't tell me how to do my job, I won't go to your job and tell you how to do your job. And, and I sort of said that tongue in cheek. But that's, that's the problem. We don't want our kids to fail. We don't want our kids to look bad. But eventually, when you're gone, the, your kids are going to be out in the real world, and they are going to fail. Do they know how to recover from that? And I think that's one of the reasons we have so much mental illness. And, you know, all these people that are, you know, I, I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't. Sure you can. You just choose not to because you're afraid of what the outcome might be. Yeah, I think sport is one of the best ways to teach any person resilience. And I always said that when I will have kids in the future, if I'm blessed enough to have them, I will absolutely put them into sports. Because I think it's the one thing in this world right now that keeps people 
in a place where they get the opportunity to experience the lessons of life through a way that's not necessarily dangerous, right? They get to learn things like teamwork. They get to learn to how to lose. They get to learn, you know, not making the team and all these different things that they can go through in a sport and just generally hard work and grit that comes from, you know, not getting the outcome that you want. And I think it's such a powerful way of helping people develop themselves. And it's one aspect in my life that I'm super grateful for. And it sounds like you're the same in that sense. And definitely if there's anything to think about when it comes to the next generation I think putting them into a sport is probably one of the best things that you can do as a parent would you say that's fair as well oh absolutely I my my daughter our daughter got my height she also was able to go to college you know to play basketball but what you didn't see were all those days in the hot sweaty humid gym putting up thousands and thousands and thousands of shots so that she had the ability you know, to play at the next level, to play in high school and then in college. And, and that's, you know, you and I were talking about this before we jumped on, the importance of failure in life, the importance of making mistakes and not just making mistakes for the sake of making it. I remember Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, used to say, I never lose. I either learn or I win. And if you, if you look at things that way, I mean, you can lose, but I don't think you're a loser until you start blaming somebody else. I mean, we're all going to, you're, you're probably going to lose more games than you win over the course of your career, whatever that's, that sport is. So learning how to, how to lose is incredibly important, but learning from what you, you learn, what, what you learning from what you take from, from that mistake and then applying it so that you can be better. One of the chapters I wrote in my book is about, uh, it's titled most people think, with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know I've been like, oh, I'd like to do this. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I don't have the knowledge or maybe I don't have the skill to make that happen. Or what will people say about me if I fail? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not thinking with our minds. Absolutely. This has been an incredible conversation, Terry. It's been packed full of many, many nuggets of wisdom, which I think a lot of people are going to take so much away from. And I want to ask you a final couple of questions. And the first is, what impact would you like to have on the world with the work that you do today? I don't know how to answer that question. You know, I, I, I was reading an article the other day that said, you know, in the 1900s, there were about 1.7 billion people that were on the face of the earth during that period. And the, the guy put in the article these names of these people. And he's like, does anybody know these people? I, I had no idea who any of them. He said, these were the most prominent and famous people in the world during that time. And so, you know, that kind of crystallized for me that I don't care how good, how important, how successful you are. Nobody's going to remember you 100 years from now. Nobody's even going to know that you were here. I guess what I would like to do is say, okay, I've learned some things. Let me put those out in the world. And if those things resonate with people, if those things make a difference in people's lives, in their hearts, in their souls, then then hopefully my time on this earth had some benefit. But I don't I don't have any I don't have any grandeurs of people, you know, naming a building or a street or even a basketball court after me, you know. So it's it's just what can you give to other people? not necessarily what you can get in your life. That's a fair answer. And where is the best place for people to find you if they want to keep up with the work that you're doing or if they want to read your book, for example? So I, I have a blog. It's called Motivational Check. Uh, every day I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought usually comes a question about how maybe you could apply it 
in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message. I have recommendations for books to read, videos to watch. Uh, you can get my book there. You can leave me a message. That's all at motivationalcheck.com. Perfect. I'll put that in the description below. But Terry, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an amazing conversation. Elliot, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you.